Hello, podcast friends, and welcome back to my studio in a closet where I record the very strange wanderings of my mind when it comes to the things of faith and God. We've been talking about the Bible and asking the question, can it actually be trusted? If you grew up in evangelical churches in the 60s like I did, you know exactly what a sword drill is. But if you didn't, you may think it has something to do with the Pirates of the Caribbean or I don't know. But anyway, it's actually a race to see who can find a verse in the Bible the fastest. And we did this in Sunday school all the time. The teacher would say, get your swords ready. And you would hold up your Bible with your fingers poised to quickly thumb through the pages to find the passage that the teacher would read out. I was never very fast. Strange name, Sword Drill. Welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but rather uncertain. If you listened to last week's episode, we spoke about the New Testament and how it was all put together. Who decided which writings were in and which were out? Today, I wanted to talk about the Old Testament and where it came from, and specifically who wrote the first five books, because the origins of this book have so much to do with whether it can be trusted or not. But then the coronavirus hit big time all over the world. And I was debating, should I do a podcast on it? But then I thought, I can't imagine I have anything to say that hasn't already been said on the subject. And if you're anything like me, you're probably getting a little weary of yet another podcast or another video about the coronavirus. So my plan was to just mention it in the intro and then get into the content of what I really wanted to talk about. But by the time I finished my intro, I pretty much had a whole podcast. So yes, it is another Corona-based podcast. As I record this, it's April the 1st, and we are on day six of a complete lockdown in South Africa. I'm not allowed to leave my house or even go for a run, although I did three Ks around my garden this morning. I do get to go out and buy groceries, and I have a letter that allows me to transport our baby house staff home and back, but that's about it. The entire world is in some kind of a new normal because of this virus. Now, maybe by the time you're listening to this, we have all come out on the other side of this thing. Maybe for good, maybe not. Only time will really tell. One of the incredible differences between this crisis and other crises the world have faced is the vastness of social media. We get more information in real time than ever before. My father-in-law fought in World War II. He would write letters to my mother-in-law, his then fiance, from Europe where he was stationed. She'd have to wait for weeks to get word about what was going on. 
We've all seen the movies of families huddled around the radio trying to get any bit of information about what was happening on the front in Europe or in the Pacific. But today, you can go to a website or a social media page and get real-time stats on the number of infections from this virus or deaths, the number of recoveries. We've all seen the videos that people make of themselves or of their loved ones that are suffering from the virus. There are people doing Facebook Live posts from the quarantined cruise liners. So it makes the crisis very different than anything anyone has ever experienced. But with all that information, there's a ton of misinformation out there as well. That's true on a political front, although I don't plan to address that here. I want to talk about the Christian misinformation out there, and specifically how the Bible is so often used in a crisis like this. Now understand, this is not a new thing. We've been using the Bible like this for a while now, but it certainly comes to the fore in a situation like we are in. I'm referring to using the Bible as a weapon. Many of us were taught this in our Christian churches, that the Bible is our weapon against any enemy that we face. It puts us on the offense, not the defense. There are two major proof texts that are often quoted around this subject. One is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The other one comes from the book of Ephesians in chapter 6. It's the, the famous armor of God passage. Verse 17 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In both of these verses, we interpret these words, Word of God, as the Bible. In fact, in modern evangelicalism, we have a nickname for the Bible. It's the Word of God, or sometimes just the Word. We use very Christianese phrases like, Preach the Word, Pastor, or I build my life only on the Word. And so every time we see this phrase, the Word of God in the Bible, we figure it's talking about itself. So in these verses that I just mentioned, then the Bible is our weapon. I just saw this on a a Kenneth Copeland website. I I thought this was fascinating. Here's a quote. The Word is the number one weapon God has given you to win in life. When applied correctly, it can solve any problem. Financial disaster, chronic illness, crumbling marriage, broken relationship, political unrest, anything. He then goes on to say how we use the Bible correctly. And you must memorize verses and then repeat them out loud as a weapon against your enemy whatever it is. Come on, does anybody actually think I can fix a crumbling marriage 
by just quoting a Bible verse over and over? Of course not. I mean, maybe try quoting Saul or Proverbs 31 to your wife sometime and just see how that goes. But if you're going to save a crumbling marriage, you need to go to counseling and then do the hard work of forgiveness and humility and love. You don't fix it by quoting a Bible verse. I've seen this over and over again on social media when it comes to the coronavirus. People will quote verses like Isaiah 54, 17, No weapon formed against me shall prosper. Or Psalms 91 that says, No harm will come against you. No disaster will come near your tent. It's like we have these magic words like abracadabra that we can say and will be immune from the virus. If we quote them over and over and over, and if we really believe them, then nothing can touch us, not even COVID-19. My friends, this is nothing but superstition. Quoting Bible verses won't help. Washing your hands will. But there's a crazy thing. I think, we are, I think most of us get that. I don't actually think we have magic words that we can say that will keep us immune. And yet somehow it makes us feel better. And so we share these posts on social media and we just propagate this myth. Let me take you back to those two verses that I quoted earlier, the ones about the Bible being a sword or the Bible being a weapon. Hebrews 4.12, the verse that says, the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, is not actually speaking about the canonized Protestant Bible. That's not what it means when it says the word of God. The Greek word for word of God there is used is, is logos. It's the same word that John used in John chapter 1 when he says, in the beginning was the word, was the logos. Neither John nor the author of Hebrews is speaking of the canonized Protestant Bible that we have today. They're talking about something different. Then when I come to the passage in Ephesians, that speaks as the sword of the Spirit being the Word of God, the Greek word there is rhema. It means the spoken Word of God. It's not about the written Word, the things that are written down. It's not speaking even of the Hebrew Scriptures. It's speaking of the spoken Word of God. Again, you can't just take this verse and say that the sword of the Spirit is the canonized Protestant version of the Bible that we have today. It is just bad interpretation. But we interpret it this way because we decided a number of years ago that the only way that God really speaks is through the canonized Protestant Bible. So therefore, some would say, both of these passages are speaking of our Bible. 
I would suggest that we are connecting dots that we were never meant to connect. Neither of these verses is saying that the Bible or particular verses in the Bible are weapons of warfare. So, here's the question. How do we use the Bible? And what relevance does it have in these times? Because I think that the Bible can be incredibly helpful and relevant in times of crisis, but not as a weapon. It reminds me constantly that God is actually at work, that God is present in our situation. I've talked about before how when we look at this picture of the cross, it shows us a God that is co-suffering, a God that knows our pain and our anxiety, a God that has suffered and suffers right alongside of us. That is why Jesus could say, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Jesus isn't saying He'll take the struggle away. He's not saying, don't worry, everything will be fine. He is saying, I will walk through this crap with you because I get it. Because I know your pain. I know your struggle. I know your anxiety. I've been there. There's something about someone walking alongside you through a struggle that has been through the same struggle that seems to make it easier because because we know they get it. You don't have to tell them what you're feeling because they've been there. They know exactly. And so they don't even have to say much. They can just be there and it makes you feel better. That is what Jesus is saying here. And verses like this can be an incredible encouragement to us in times like this. Not a weapon, but an encouragement. There's a big difference. I started washing my hands a few weeks ago. Okay, that may freak some of you out, but let's face it. How many of us have really washed our hands for a full 20 second, like 10 times a day, like we're doing now? Certainly not me. Anyway, the point is that what I started doing is quoting the 23rd Psalm while I'm washing my hands. See, the truth is that my anxiety is through the roof right now. Sheila and I are having this constant running discussion slash debate on how we keep our babies safe right now. At least two of the five are super vulnerable. And if this virus gets into our baby house, I'm afraid to think of what might happen. And so some days the truth is I am just spinning out. 
But when I remind myself of this poem, written by King David, when he was going through a really rough time, it calms me. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. You lead me beside still waters. You restore my soul. Oh my gosh, what great encouragement to remind myself of that a number of times a day is helping me cope. I've been drawn to the line, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's not you throw me a sword or better yet a lightsaber when my enemies are all around me so I can be on the offensive. It says you prepare a feast And you tell me to sit down and eat in the presence of my enemies. How cool is that? I was thinking about the temptation of Jesus when he was in the desert. We read about it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because often we, and certainly I have seen this, as Jesus using Scripture as a weapon to defeat Satan. But I'm not so sure that's true anymore. Let me explain. As I read it now, it seems to me that what was under the surface of each of the three temptations was Jesus' own identity or how he saw himself. Don't forget that just before he went to the desert, he had been baptized by John. And as he came out of the water, those around heard this voice from heaven. And it said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God himself affirms Jesus' identity, maybe for the people around him, but maybe even more so for Jesus himself. Because in his humanness, he would have struggled with identity just like the rest of us do. I mean, talk to your pastor and see if he doesn't struggle with his identity and his calling, like every Monday, because we all do. The late Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest and an author. He spoke about three lies that we tell ourselves that all deal with our identity. I am what I do, I am what I have, and I am what other people say about me. All lies about our identity. I am what I do, I am what I have, or I am what other people say about me. I'm sure you see yourselves in one of these, if not all of them at times, because we all fall victim to these lies. So the first temptation of Jesus was to turn these stones into bread. It's the I am what I do lie. Certainly, if you are the Son of God, you can do this, right? So prove it. Prove what you can do. How often we fall for the I am what I do lie. 
It's certainly a struggle that most of us go through when we retire because we have so given into the idea that I am what I do that when I have nothing to do, I don't know who I am anymore. So Jesus being fully human would have been tempted just like we are to let his identity be defined by what he did. Then the second temptation, throw yourself off this cliff and see what happens. After all, people have written that the angels will protect you. Let's see if what they say is true. So there's the lie that I find my identity in what others say about me, how others see me. And like Jesus, we've all been tempted to give in to the lie about who we are based on what other people say. And by the way, this works both ways. Sometimes we believe that we are less than because people have told us that. And other times we think we are greater than for the same reason. One great piece of wisdom that my father used to give me was don't believe your own press release. It's the lie of, I am what others say about me. And then thirdly, Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and says, this could all be yours. I am what I have. Oh, we have a lot of different ways to speak about this today. Um, How about, you are what you drive? Or, he who dies with the most toys wins. Our society is ripe with this lie that I am what I have. These temptations were attacking Jesus' identity and his calling as Redeemer and Savior, but through the weakness of his humanity, through his identity and insecurity as a human being. And so how does Jesus respond? In all three cases, he he quotes scripture, but I don't see it as some kind of weapon against the enemy. Like if I repeat this verse, you can't touch me, but more as an encouragement to himself to remind himself who he actually is and what he came to do, to remind himself that he doesn't have to listen to the lies. So here's what I'm trying to say. The the words of Scripture can be a great comfort, a great encouragement in difficult times. They can encourage me to trust, to let go, to believe that God is at work in all of this somehow. But it's not a weapon that we use to get what we want. It's not, get this, it's not a way that we control the situation. Because let's face it, that's what we're trying to do. To quote verses, to control a situation that doesn't seem to be in our control. That is not what we use the Bible for. It is a message of comfort, a message of grace in difficult times. It's a way to remind ourselves that our co-suffering God is right there with us, 
in the midst of the chaos and the crisis. Okay, so that was supposed to be my intro, but I'm going to leave it there for this week. I will be back soon to talk about the Old Testament and specifically who wrote those first five books of the Bible that we call the Torah, sometimes the Law, or the Pentateuch. Were they eyewitnesses of the facts or were they written much later? We might even jump into the debate of Genesis 1 and 2. Fact or myth? That should be fun. So, until then, keep yourself safe, wash your hands, Stay at home as much as you can. Shalom.